listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So, Jeff, today's going to be a bit of a throwback for us. A throwback to where? Or to what? Well, we have no guests today. So it's just me and you talking old school, like episode one or whatever. So uh, I'm bored already. <laughs> <laughs> good setup. Good setup. <laughs> Way to hook them early and often, right? So we are continuing our discussion of growth, and we've had two really, really great guests talking about different pieces of growth. You know, I think, you know, looking back on those two conversations, I feel like our conversation with Jay was all about building a culture for growth, making good technology choices, whereas our conversation with Gunnar was more about spotting kind of long-term trends and discerning them from from short-term fads. I look at today as being a little bit more tactical in the moment, meaning we set this up as, as talking about how to deepen existing client relationships. So how do you work your way deeper into the clients you already have as an avenue in, into growth? So I feel like it's a little bit more, let's just get into the nuts and bolts of what you got to do to expand client relationships. Oh, if it were so easy. <laughs> when you said that, I'm like, hmm, I know where he's going, but I would argue that expanding existing client relationships is every bit as strategic as those other things that we talked about with Jay and and Gunner. And maybe I'm just thinking here as I'm speaking that that's why it's so difficult for our firms to do is they approach it too tactically and assume it should be easy when they need to be thinking about it more strategically. Or maybe they think about it way too strategically (laughs) and over-engineer what it really requires to get it done. But I think it's going to be a fun conversation because, I mean, it is the nuts and bolts of growth, I think. So it's, it's really important. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess I, I didn't mean to imply it was easy. I was more kind of saying it seems like this is where a lion's share of a firm's energy goes, right? Is how do we service our clients better and how do we deepen the relationships as a result? I can't remember the framework real well, but I remember that I'll go back to my business school faculty member again, Neelia Bendaputi, who taught services marketing back 20 years ago. And she always talked about how you needed to have one client that trusted you enough to stretch you routinely, meaning it's so much trust in the relationship they have with you that they would sort of invite you into new services that you didn't know how to do. And full well knowing you didn't know how to do them. They'd say, well, I want you to take this on for us. And I know you've never done it before, but I have confidence your firm can do it. And you need that you know, client in your portfolio of clients to, to sort of build out new innovative ways of working. And I know we've certainly had our fair share of clients over the years like that, that have pulled us into things that we didn't know how to do. And then over the years, we built, you know, successful businesses out of those ventures. So sometimes it's maybe, maybe the other way around. That was a little bit off topic, but. (laughs) Well, that's good advice. And that came from an Ohio State professor. (laughs) It is one of the world's top 10 research institutions. I just don't want to clue you in on that. (laughs) Well, I think she gave you good advice. I, I always refer to those as friends of the firm. You know, that you have such a deep relationship, you can go ask them the hard questions and the downside risk of those questions are minimal. And the same happens with, you know, using those clients as an R&D laboratory. 
So that's great counsel. So how are we going to break this out? Well, yeah, I, I'm not really sure. I don't know how strategic or tactical we want to be here, to your point. You know, in setting it up, I think we talked about there's really maybe three different things to think about. You know, there's innovation. So this idea that you're going to innovate new offerings or new ways to create value. There's cross-selling. So there's this idea that, you know, the client's buying your firm for X, but the firm has Y, Z, and and F or whatever else off to the side that the client isn't aware of or isn't purchasing for one reason or another. And then I've loosely described it as sort of deepening share of wallets in the sense of that, I suppose, on some level, there are instances where the client is buying the same solution from multiple firms. And so the the goal for the firm is to get more of what's there in some way, shape, or form. I don't know how frequent that is in, in professional services firms, but I would imagine it's more frequent than people care to believe. So we could go down any one of those paths, I, I imagine. Does one jump out to you as, as more lucrative or maybe in your experience, more successful than another? Boy, that's a great question. I've seen great successes in all of those categories. And I've seen some serious crash and burns <laughs> in, in all of those categories. So how about we start with cross-sell? Okay. Let's tell the crash and burns if we can remember them. We have to protect the innocent, you know? <laughs> all right. We'll see how it, if the story flows and I can control myself. But cross-sell. So what's the definition of cross-sell in your mind? Because I bet you people have different definitions. Well, I mean, to me, it's pretty straightforward. It's selling additional services or bringing additional expertise into the client relationship that they're not already buying. It seems pretty simple. Is there more to it than that? It depends. I think firms look at this differently, right? And the way you cross-sell really depends on, well, what's the service or solution architecture that you offer? If you think about, you know, a big four firm, they have a breadth of solutions that cut across, I don't know, almost every function that exists in an organization, whereas other firms may have a single buyer, for example, a CIO for a litany of services. How you would approach the one where you have the capabilities across cut across functions versus one that just cuts across a singular buyer. To me, those are very different approaches to cross-selling. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So there's more nuance to it, obviously. I would always argue there's a third, right? I mean, there's probably a hundred, but a third that comes to mind is, you know, a firm that sells a solution into a large diversified corporation where there's tons of buyers for that service and getting introduced mm -hmm. to all those other potential buyers becomes one of the central roles of account management, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have an example of that? <laughs> You're going to ask me that off the top of my head. No, <laughs> I have to think more about it. I know we've stumbled into it over the years, but off the top of my head, no. Hmm. Well, all right. So let's talk about cross-selling and what that looks like. So every firm I've ever been at where, you know, there's a growth strategy in place, there's always some kind of, of penetration or, or cross-selling component to it. And generally, the cross-selling either goes vertically or horizontally. So if you're at a, a VP, director, or manager level, you know, you want to go up to the C-suite, right? So we want to cross-sell vertically within the function. And then for the larger firms, it's horizontal, right? They're already buying our tax services, then they should take our consulting and technology services or whatever other component 
that you have? To me, the second one is probably most common. And maybe my first one is a way of describing you're getting more share of the wallet by moving up in various buyers. But the cross-sell always seems so easy because it's like, well, it's it's logical. They're already using us for product X. They should use us for product Y and Z. But the problem with that is that your success selling the first product to let's let's just say tax to the to the CFO or whoever the buyer is in that company for for tax services. That's a one dimensional relationship and a one to one purchase arrangement. And the relationship exists with the one individual. Right. So if I'm a partner, I have a relationship with that CFO. He's buying my tax services. And I may think, well, I want to introduce my partner from technology consulting to their CIO. So I'll ask the CFO to introduce me because I know they're working on some kind of project or or something. Right. Would you say that's kind of a typical scenario? Yes, I would. I would 100 percent agree. Although I question if they often even know what projects are actually happening inside the client organization. They just want to force a solution in that they that they have that they think the client might need. Oh, that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> hey, can we talk to your CIO? We just want to build a relationship yeah. with him. Well, you know, he's really busy and there's already five other firms yeah, in there. Exactly. He doesn't want any yeah, more he's, he's trying to get rid of three of them right now because uh, he wants to pare it down, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that strategy to a large degree overweights relationship and really underweights the true obstacles to building out a relationship because it's almost like you're starting from scratch to a large degree. You know, if the CFO has a really deep and broad personal relationship with the CIO and they play golf all the time together, you know, there might be an opportunity for that. But for the most part, I think executives tend to let their peers operate in their little fiefdoms without too much influence. And they run pretty autonomously. So the flaw to that kind of cross-selling assumption is that the relationship is overweighted and you think somehow it's going to give you an inside track and somehow give you a shortcut over developing your own credibility by demonstrating expertise or results or, you know, building relationship. If anything, it, it just kind of gives you an introduction. Yeah, I actually think sometimes it's worse than that. We've seen it happen here at Rattleback where everyone wants to covets the CEO relationship and you want to have a relationship with the absolute top of the business because they're the key decision maker. But often they're not the buyer for a service, right? So they might make that referral down to the CMO or the CIO or whatever. And sometimes that referral down creates resentment because the CIO or the CMO doesn't really want to work with this firm just because the CEO dropped it in their lap. And so it's actually doing you more damage than it is helping you because then they're sort of resentful that they're being asked to entertain this conversation that they didn't want to have in the first place and they didn't feel was necessary. I'm going to flip direction a little bit on you maybe, but I guess I've sort of come to the realization that there's this phrase that firms throw around all the time. We truly understand our client's business. It's in like marketing speak everywhere for every firm of every type. (laughs) But I don't think they really do. But I think it's shocking how little they really do understand. I think they understand this very narrow slice in which they operate. You know, They're an accounting firm and they understand tax and the, the tax situation. They're a legal firm, they understand risk and compliance and contracts. They're a consulting firm and they understand the leadership team dynamics or the strategy, but 
they don't understand a whole lot of, of what's going on. And in that your example kind of cuts to the chase on that, where if the idea is, well, we have a relationship with the CFO, make an introduction to the CIO. Well, there's no business reason to do that, right? In the, unless in the nature of your work, it came up that, man, the tech systems are really holding back our ability to handle compliance. Let's have a conversation with the CIO about how we can resolve that, right? Where you've found a business problem that needs to be solved, not just to your point. I have a relationship here. We, you know, let's use that to get another relationship. It's got to start with a problem, ultimately. And I think often it doesn't. Am I making any sense? You're making perfect sense. And it always starts with a problem. And this is where most firms go awry, in my opinion. And because they go awry here, I think this is an opportunity for us to kind of share how do you keep from going awry and how do you actually get in and be successful at cross-selling. So I think there's two perspectives. Getting back to your point about we don't understand their business, that's spot on nine out of 10 times because they understand the business because it's a part of a specific industry, right? You know, it's in the oil and gas. We understand oil and gas or we're in real estate. We understand real estate or we're in manufacturing. We understand manufacturing. That's not the most important part. The most important part is what's going on inside the business that nobody else gets. But in particular, what's going on from a prioritization perspective and between the buyer that's recommending you to the other buyer. So, you know, let's let's look at the buyer recommendation. So my existing buyer, my CFO could be introducing me for any number of reasons. And it's important to understand what he's trying to accomplish by introducing me. Because as an executive, I would never just introduce somebody to necessarily be a a nice guy. I mean, sometimes I would do that and I'd, I'd be clear that I'm just washing my hands of it. If there's something there, great. Go ahead, talk, whatever. But that's all I'm going to do. But I think there are lots of times where you know, a senior buyer is recommending you for a lot of different reasons. One, maybe they have cognitive dissonance and they want to make sure that they actually are working with a great firm. So they'll introduce you. And if their peer says, yeah, great, sharp guy, it makes me feel good about my choice. If you can recommend somebody to a peer and that person adds value, it can make me look smart, right? So the CFO might want to say, hey, I look smart. I'm trying to help them out and help them be successful. Or as a CFO, I may say, you know, the CIO is really getting in my way and I really want to have an impact over there. And I'm going to try to, to, you know, circumvent what he's doing with my vendor. And it's, it's kind of nuanced and how I'm going to do that. He obviously cannot deliver on this and it needs a push. And I'm going to introduce this vendor to help push it, right? So there could be that type of hidden agenda going on as well. Or there may just be a culture of team play and that's what they do. Now on the CIOs, does that make sense to you before I go on to the second buyer? Keep keep going. Keep going. So this is why when I talk about ideal clients, it's, it's really important to understand the organization as well as the individual buyers because different functional buyers may have different perspectives on how and who they attack a given issue or get help. But organizationally can get a feel for if they hire consultants or don't hire consultants, if they outsource, if they insource, there's there's a particular approach to things. They may look at different functions, either strategically or tactically. Those are important things 
to understand. But I think the most important things to understand are what are the real priorities? Because if you're not coming in, to your point, on an issue that is a priority, that's a make or break for that time frame that you're operating in, you're just, you're wasting time. And the best way, I think, to bridge between an existing relationship to another and make sure you're understanding the issue is to hone in on the metrics that those functional leaders share. So what one function is doing, it's impact on the other one, and that that it's being measured by a common performance measure. Because now they're both vested in a positive outcome around that performance measure, and it makes it much easier to bridge from existing relationship to new relationship because now they both have skin in the game around that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. What I find interesting about the whole story you just told is most of it is actually coming from the buyer's point of view, from the client's point of view. And when we started this conversation, we were talking about how you grow your business, you know, and and how you grow your firm and cross-selling as a means to do that, which is coming from the firm's point of view. It just makes me realize that, you know, (laughs) that's the essence of the problem in a lot of ways is that firms want to go sell more services to clients more often than they want to really listen and understand what the priorities are and what the issues are and let the firm introduce them (laughs) as a solution to those problems. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. All that assumes that the partners that, that's dealing with the CFO and the partner that would be dealing with the CIO are going to come out of different practices, right? That the two of those in the firm actually trust one another. Yes. Because if if I manage the relationship with finance and I'm going to introduce you to IT and the IT engagement goes south, that would blow back on my relationship from finance. And that hurts my reputation as a trusted advisor, if you will. You know, now I have a reputation. Oh yeah, he's he's the one who brought in that goofball IT person it screwed everything up. And most consultants I find operate out of fear. They don't want to jeopardize those relationships. So all of that penetration and focused on issues and shared metrics around outcomes in issues is only relevant if there's enough trust mm-hmm. between the selling side of the equation when it comes to cross-sell. And most firms fail right there. They don't have a culture of, of cross-sell because they don't trust one another. They just don't. Well, and it ties back to the conversation we had about value propositions a few episodes ago where you made this point of saying, well, Jason, I'm thinking about internal value propositions in my head spawn. I thought, like, what? And you, but I think that's what you were saying, though, is making the case internally that it would make sense to bring, you know, bring in the our, our technology practice into the CFO relationship as an entree into the CIO and building confidence 
with the relationship owner that that's a good idea. That's a really powerful statement, you know, and it's kind of a scary one too, in a way. I mean, that, you know, you build a diversified firm if you have a firm of some scale. I think about Jay, who was on our episode a couple of times ago, he's got a pretty diverse business. You know, he's doing Salesforce work. He's working with other technologies that are extensions of that. And, you know, what if the, the people running the Salesforce work didn't trust the people doing the mule soft work, which is now a piece of software owned by Salesforce, they wouldn't be able to, to sell in that additional solution very well if they don't trust each other. And that's a great example because Jay and the Spalding Ridge people do trust one another. And Jay spoke about this on the podcast is they're not just coming in and implementing Salesforce or implementing Anaplan or implementing MuleSoft. They're looking above that at the integration and the synergies that exist between those technologies. So in many ways, they have the most difficult cross-selling because they have to come in and they have to help a chief revenue officer who may be responsible for Salesforce, a CFO who is responsible for Anaplan and, and scenario planning, and an operations person who is configuring and developing products or services to be delivered based on what sales is selling. Because Spalding Ridge sells to companies that are part of complex B2B sales. So they are kind of the quintessential example of having to look at those shared issues and shared performance metrics so that they can move all three of those in sync. That is so hard to do and takes such sales ability, but also a deep understanding of your expertise and your solutions and the issues your clients are facing, because that is a lot of moving parts. To put together. But they, as Jay said, they structured it that way. They chose those software partners because they integrate well, that they're best in class, and that they have the reputations that allow them to have those very difficult conversations across those functions. That's a perfect example of that. We're out of time, but I want to close out. I want to close out our listeners with a single thought, you know, and so process this for a second for me. So stepping back from the void, everything we just talked about, if you're in a firm right now and you're thinking to yourself, okay, we need to deepen our existing client relationships. What's the first thing that should be top of mind? What's the very first thing you should be thinking about? What issues are the clients dealing with? And the issues are firm-wide. They're function-wide and they're buyer-specific. And it's important to understand not just where your core capabilities line up against those issues, because that's relatively straightforward, I would think. It's making sure that you've identified the real issue and that issue is, in fact, a priority for the parties involved. And oh man, I can provide story after story after story where we in the past have gone after people that were like, man, they, this obviously is a priority for them. And it wouldn't even make their top 10 list. So you need to understand what's going on in the client. That's number one. Yeah, I think the, uh, an interesting comment to that. I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I've been struggling through 
an article on resetting growth for 2021, you know, sort of as we've kind of made sense of what's happened in 2020. And one of the premises I have in it that, that's still in draft form, but is just this idea that all those priorities might have just radically changed right in front of your eyes and you don't even know it as a firm. So things that were high priorities in January suddenly were no longer priorities in March. Some new priorities emerged in May. And in September, some old priorities were dropped off and some of those new ones were resolved. And so like that, that whole priority mix has completely shifted. And I think for a lot of firms and their client relationships, that priority list is not as visible as it once was. And so it's almost like you got to rebuild the priority list again for the first time because so much has changed in so many companies in the last six months. And to me, that's the easy part. The prioritization of issues is a relatively straightforward exercise. What's more difficult is understanding the emotional complexity that is existing within those companies given these newfound pressures. And personalities react to pressure in very different ways. Some thrive in it, some get dysfunctional really quickly. But being able to identify the priorities, but more important, the emotional context in which you're going to help solve those and in which way is where the hard work needs to be done. And the only way you really do that is, I think, one-to-one. I don't know if we shed new light on this topic or if we gave people more of what they already knew or not, but it was useful to me. So hopefully it's useful to listeners. <laughs> well, it's, it's all over the place because it is all over the place. Right. You're cross selling organization, to organization, function to function, people to people. It's complex. There is no easy answer. It's hand to hand combat. And it's why things like key account management. And this is why I said this is strategic is you have to strategically choose the right people with the right skills to go after the right people for the right reasons. And you have to have a process and a methodology that enables that. And most firms don't think through all of those pieces. They think it's relatively easy, as we said at the beginning. We already have a relationship. Let's just have them introduce us to the other function. And then we'll just go hand to hand. And it takes a special person to do that. It really takes a special person to make an opportunity like that come to fruition. So. There are a lot of things that have to be in place that enable it as well. Well, it's like you always say, is it more strategical or more strategic? <laughs> is it more tactical? The answer is yes, right? It's it's both. Right. All right, man. Well, we'll keep peeling back all these different layers of growth here in the next episode. Well, I'm not even going to declare what our next episode is yet because I don't know that we covered this one and it's in full entirety yet. So I'll talk to you next week. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.